This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm your buddy, cop. Mm. And I'm the Machine. It's a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The Machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although, we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the movie 48 Hours. Or, as the poster calls it, 48 hers. That's not... No. That's just not good. <laughs> we can do better than that. It sounds like you're winding down, that, like huh? a machine winding down. <laughs> Actually, you know, we could talk about time that way. Partners, we ain't brothers and we ain't friends. I'm putting you down and keeping you down until Gans is locked up or dead. And if Gans gets away, you're going to be sorry you ever met me. I'm already sorry. Nick Nolte is a cop. Eddie Murphy is a con. I can help you get Gans, but you got to get me out of here first. You're crazy. He pulls some strings. See how you needed me a little more than you thought, huh, Mr. K? He pulls some scams. So where do you want to do it, honey? Want to hop up on the counter? Nah, we can go in this room over here next to the bathroom. Give me a break. I'm that serious. Come on, we're in the mood. Let's go. They've got two killers to track down. Toss me that piece, and he won't waste him. They've got a kidnapping going down. I want the money. I don't know what you're talking about. I want that Indian to snap her neck. They've got a fortune to hunt down. I want to know what's going on between you and Gans. Half a million dollars. But we do also need to give a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions, of course, help us continue the show since the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Uh, Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. Most recent one, you can hear Dave and I yell at each other over Minion Moskowitz. So if you want to hear a very strenuous conversation, (laughs) head on over there and be a supporter. Uh, Don't support that movie. (laughs) Yeah. And I am on the other side of that position. So we... 1971 was a good year. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of polarity. eh? (laughs) It was a good for fisticuffs. (laughs) Now, before we get into talking about this week's movie... We should talk about Patreon a little bit more because we got a comment over there, Dave, mm-hmm, which adds mm-hmm, to heard. our deep and rich fiction. Of course, one okay. of our supporters who goes by the uh, the handle CM-47. We were talking, I forget which episode, I think it was the Sophie's Sounds like Choice. Sounds like an doesn't it? <laughs> sure, yes. I think that was how <laughs> gamma radiation started or something. They sent in, I believe this was in regards to our Sophie's Choice episode, but we were okay. having this struggle, right, of like, well, why don't we just go through the door again? If our guests can come through this door. Oh, right. You have a deep and rich fiction. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's this, a door. We, yeah, I This door that our guests come through and are able to talk with us while we're here in literally the year 1982. Why yes. can't we just walk through the door? Which another person posed to us and I was like, how dare you? point out these plot holes on this podcast (laughs) um but cm-47 writes in since your deep and rich fiction surprisingly had a plot hole i'd like to suggest a possible fix since the machine wants to end the world it makes sense that the door for guests was specifically made to fuck with you guys after all oh wow the door only opened at the end of the first season when kyle solved the puzzle 
if you remember way back at the end of season one. Dave doesn't because he never listens to these episodes after no. I make them. So meaning that the door opens when the machine allows it. Dave is left stuck mm. with Kyle, wondering if his family is okay without him. And Kyle is missing out on some theater, I guess. Or it's oh, because you both that. really... So dismissive. It's yeah. perfect. <laughs> I have no family and nothing tying me to anything. I am a husk of a human being. Kyle's happy to be here. Yeah. Um, Human contact. I, uh, had, I literally, I, I'm not going to get into it, but I literally lost my mind while in New York City. If I, you know, I went we to New York City. We need to talk about this year. existential Anyways. crisis you had. Yeah, in the Big Apple. In the Big Apple. In the Big Apple. 1982, Big Apple too. So it was a very wild and weird time. Dangerous. Yeah. It was a very dangerous place, right? Correct. Yeah. Times Square hadn't been cleaned up yet at that point. It was... Ugh dirty and gross there's yeah stabbings yeah, but yeah. apparently you could get an apartment for how much was it in 1970 yeah, i bought an apartment for 400 Six bucks. bucks a month so <laughs> uh anyways it's it's either that or it's because you both really don't want to go back to the dark times but that's my mm. flimsy fix to the kd vs mm. tmcu mm. which i think is what we should call our deep and rich fiction from now on <laughs> we do invite other podcasts so yeah some crossover yeah well we we have some yeah we have some crossover Kevin right? Feige can back up the truck to us. We're, we we can be bought for so little Dude. money that it is remarkable. It would be like, like a rounding one error million for bucks. like yeah. what is that? You know, it's like how much they pay a grip. Exactly. Be awesome. Like literally, you could give us, I don't know, one ten thousandth of whatever the box office <laughs> Doctor Strange is going to make here, and we would be fine. We'll with take that. it. Also a cape. Also the cape. I, you know, uh, whatever. I'll pronounce Benedict Cumberbatch's name correctly. I'll do it if that's what it takes. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Who cares? Um, mm. he, he offers one. Uh, they offer one last thing here too. They say I'm uh, I'm offended that Ooh. Dave assumes everyone knows who Meryl Streep is. That's right. Wow. I've been under a rock this entire time. How dare you assume everyone knows Meryl Streep, Dave? Yeah, that's fair. I suppose it's possible that no one has heard of Meryl Streep before. Well, there's the, the mm. those people do exist. I'm guessing the younger people is what my my assumption you know what, would be. That's, I guess that's true. Yeah. Because why would you watch an old lady win awards? Who gives a <laughs> yeah. shit anymore? Right? The inverse is also true because I try to stay up to date as much as I possibly can with like pop culture and stuff. Anytime I tune into Saturday Night Live, which also proves that I'm an old person because I watch Saturday Night Live. Anytime... Not on YouTube? There's Like a, on cable television? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I dial up my cable television package. No. <laughs> I would say 90%, 85% of the 85% of the time, I have no idea who the musical guest is. Not just like I don't know them, have never heard of them in my lifetime. I'm like, who is this? What are they doing? Oh, I guess they're super famous. I literally no name recognition whatsoever. You know what's happening? I did we talk about this or was it time to somebody else? We were listening to I guess now Apple Music. I do right. miss Spotify sure. to be honest. Uh their algorithm anyways. And uh, something came up. It was either whatever, like Madonna or right. uh, like somebody big. And without even knowing the song, Emerson could name essentially the artist right. because there was a period of time when there was, you know, five celebrities. We saw the 1971. It was like six <laughs> actors basically <laughs> right. doing everything. But like I read, uh, I think we talked about this years ago, but there's a person that said it was still mathematically possible to have read every book ever written up to like 1992. Right. After right. which 
there's this explosion of too many people writing. Not that it's, well, it's thinned out a bit, but not that that's a bad thing. I think that's what's happening with culture. There are too many actors, there are too many singers, and not, too many is the wrong word, but there are many. Mm-hmm. And so it's impossible not only to keep up, but for one of these people to last in the zeitgeist. I mean, Billie Eilish, whether I like, I don't like her music, she's so big. Will she last the 60-year mark that a Michael Jackson has? We don't know. I have a feeling not because there's already people that sound like her mm-hmm. putting out songs that are going up. They don't have, do they still have charts? Going up the algorithm? What do, what do we say yeah. anymore? Well, that's the thing too, mm-hmm. like how things get charted are, is also a completely different process. It's not just radio play. It's now like, are they getting played on YouTube videos, TikTok videos? Like all that gets put into the same you know, whatever tabulation as far as like ballot, which is yeah. why you get things like we don't talk about Bruno being the number one song in America. It's not because people are listening to that on the radio. It's because right. they're putting it into TikTok videos and their kids are listening to it on their Spotify. So it's like, yeah, that all this kind of goes uh, through the roof in that case. Luckily, everyone is going to remember you too in 50 years. Of course, Earth dies the next year. The other thing too, as far as the fragmentation of culture, I made that joke, I think, a few, I don't know, months ago now. What is time? What is time? About uh, They're redefining the second. Did you know that? I don't know what you're talking they found about. That, they found that time alters depending on the altitude because of the uh, mm. relative gravity. So they're trying to find new ways to uh, uh, standardize one second so that time itself doesn't shift depending on where you live. Well, that's I wild. I read weird stuff on the internet. That's wild. Okay. Let's move um, on. No, I was, gonna, I was just going to say like, for TV shows in particular, sometimes it's not even that I don't know what the TV show is, which is probably true. I don't even know what the station is that it's on. Like, it's like, I don't know what this service is that you're talking about. Like, it's on where yeah. at what? T- like, how do I get this thing? There's there's that. But because there is so much in that fragmentation, I was actually having this conversation with uh, one of our previous guests. And uh, they were mentioning how for writers now, it's actually counterproductive to work on those shows like it still matters what type of show you work on because if you're working on like yeah i'm a staff writer on this show but nobody watched it <laughs> nobody knows what it is that does you no good when it's like okay now i'm going to try and you know elevate my it's career because it's like this this is a show that never existed really it, to any extent so you just kind of wasted your time yeah it's it's tough i i just watched the new Howie Mandel show on Netflix. Uh, Why? Uh, the bullshit show. No, it's pretty good. Okay. It's pretty good. Anyways, one of the contestants is a podcaster. And it's funny because the quip was like everybody else, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which cuts a little close to, to the bone for us. But also, um, yeah, I think it speaks to this idea of the accessibility of information has also, and the democratization, I suppose, of information has created this glut. Yeah. Of, so I, when I go to Metacritic, I'm I, uh, when I go to Metacritic, I'm surprised that they even make TV shows. I thought everybody left cable, but <laughs> apparently that's not. That's just me. Yeah. People still watch sports and shit, so they pay a hundred bucks, whatever it is in Canada, well, to get uh, sports right a month. So different world for sure. But I guess we should talk about time and the way things don't make sense. Let's talk about 48 hours, Dave. (laughs) Uh, In my mind, I think there's three people we should just kind of talk about as far as our history with this movie. I guess I should first ask, have you seen this movie before? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I watched, I mean, not recently, but I watched it probably during my Eddie Murphy phase. Yeah. And he was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Hey, that lasted a long time, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. 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 I thought I had seen this movie before. And then, Uh 
not that we've watched it here yet, I guess, technically within our deep and rich yeah, fiction, but uh, broke the fiction I already. very soon discovered like, no, I don't think I ever have actually yeah. watched this movie. I've definitely seen every movie that was inspired After. by this movie. Cause, yes, right. But I don't think I've actually you see the beats. Yeah, because yeah. I don't think I've seen this movie. But um, for this movie in particular, I think there's three people we should just quickly go through. Do you have anything to say about Walter Hill, the director and co-writer of this movie? Uh, not really. I was just looking up the, uh, the background, the movies that he's listed, red heat. It's not a good movie. No offense, Arnold. (laughs) Well, I was about to say, like, you sometimes hear this with comedians, right? Like the comedian's comedian, right? The person that Mm -hmm. every comedian Mm -hmm. loves, but the general public may or may not be like super enthusiastic about them. I would term Walter Hill the director's director because literally every person will say, Walter Hill, biggest influence in my life. Love Walter Hill. Walter Hill movies are like one of the things I love watching. Mm. Definitely some of his stuff is broken through. Like we shouldn't say like he's a nobody, quote unquote. I mean, the Warriors would be the big one that he would have made like right before this movie came out. So I think that there's that type of like. Uh, recognition cult status yeah yeah. and status but uh if we just take a look at quickly at his uh director filmography here we have like yeah hard times the driver 48 hours streets of fire brewster's millions red heat Mm. uh i'm trying to think here those are kind of the big ones before i would say a bunch of stuff that i've never heard of (laughs) (laughs) after after the 1990s basically but uh i mean apparently he produced alien mm -hmm. so that's Good for him. That's a classic. He wrote Alien 3. Honestly, it's a little underrated. It's not a terrible Yeah, I will I'll go to bat movie. for Alien 3. I mean, this is what everyone says, and I do truly believe it. If that movie was not called Alien 3, I think it would be much more beloved. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. because it's part of the Alien franchise and they undo a perfect ending of Alien 2 or Aliens yeah. that yeah, people I was like say it's not Alien 2. Kyle. Alien like, 2, Electric to... Boogaloo, of course. Uh, we all know that that sequel. It's like they're dancing and spitting yeah, acid. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's why people have just like totally reject that wholesale. But I think it's actually a pretty yeah. decent science fiction film. If you can yeah, divorce yeah. it from the fact that, but it's not a good alien movie. But it yeah, is a Dave good Fincher, science fiction Dave movie. Yeah, it looks great. But uh, that's a whole other problem. Alien right, 4, by on. The, by, on the other hand, Resurrection is dog shit. It is awful. You know, I didn't mind until the ending. Mm. And if they had uh, not fucked the ending so bad with that embryonic, mm. gross shit. And then the uh, they had, to, what's the production story? They had to rush the ending because they ran out of budget or whatever. Because yeah, that last it, it, 10 If minutes. you read up on what the actual ending was supposed to be, I don't even know if that would have worked. Because it was supposed to be like yeah, sex with the alien queen and like impregnating yeah, people. And it got control. like really super weird then. But we got to see Sigourney Weaver break a basketball with one hand. I think that's cool. She learned how right? to do that for real. Do the <laughs> behind the shot thing. That was her actually doing that. So, All right. Anyways, so Walter Hill, like kind of a big deal, I would say, in like the okay. late 70s into the 80s. Not for sort us, of thing, so. but for the industry. But for the industry. Sure. How about Nick Nolte, though? He was a big deal at the time. Yeah, who doesn't know Nick Nolte? Uh, are we doing Baxter? I just, Not I don't yet, know. We're I just, just doing to know a what your okay, history fine. with Nick Nolte is. I think he's interesting because he embodies so much of the spirituality that I admire. Just being an <laughs> asshole, right? And uh, being saying his mind. Being violently racist. Yeah, it's just all the stuff that you admire. <laughs> we haven't watched the movie okay, yet. Okay. We haven't watched the movie yet, so we'll get into that in a second. I wish I had feathered hair, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, a, no, just, it is a great 80s haircut, <laughs> you yeah. have to say. <laughs> Uh, no, for him, it's like the, he's got the voice, 
right? Mm -hmm. The gravelly voice. But when I think about it, I'm not sure if I watched a lot of Nick Nolte movies. I just know him because he's got a lot of yeah, cultural presence because he's You weren't a big fan of Lorenzo's Oil, Dave? You weren't like super into (laughs) Lorenzo's Oil? I don't think I've even watched The Prince of Tides. I'm pretty sure that was my anti-drama stage when that came out Mm because I was probably 12 or something. So, but I know him and I I think he's interesting. He, I know he's a mess, right? Mm -hmm. I think we all know he's a mess and uh, he seems to be losing or making films where he doesn't seem intelligible anymore. And I don't know if that's a role selection thing or well i mean he's at that stage where i just don't think there's probably a lot of great scripts coming his way i Mm -hmm. i mean there's a lot of ifs in the statement i'm about to make i feel like he is due i don't know that that one one resurrection an alien resurrection you might say (laughs) maybe but you know how like bruce dern had that like short run of two or three films like oh my god bruce dern again is back or whatever back I'm yeah. sure there's another example I can think of. Oh, uh, Christopher Plummer, I thought had that in like his last few years too of him. Like, I feel like he was always making weird films. But I Just, feel Nick Nolte he's Canadian, is, so nobody gave a shit. Yeah. yeah, I think Nick Nolte is due for like a two or three run of like, oh my god, Nick Nolte's back and he's like doing his yeah. thing again. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of redemption arc ifs redemption that have arc. to happen within that. I was just gonna see like, what is he up to? What has he been doing? He's got credits. I know he was in I the Mandalorian. Don't... That's basically the last thing I can remember him in, but. Okay, see, this is what always happens. He's been in a bunch of TV stuff that I've never heard of. That's yeah. that's why. To your earlier point, mm-hmm. it's just not relevant because nobody watches it. Right. Apparently, he made a movie in 2020 where he plays Shakespeare. That can't be good. There was this lecture I went to when I was in university. I still remember it. Um, and it was about specifically about filmmaking because I... I thought one time specifically thought, about Nick Nolte. Specifically about Nick Nolte. It was like, we need to talk about everything Nick Nolte related. Cinema 206, Nick Nolte. Six hour lecture, <laughs> <laughs> no breaks, just all Nick Nolte. It's not even a lecture. You just have to stare at his face right. for two hours in a class. Yeah. Um, and this is why it should have been called the King of Tides. No, um, this uh, Method. Yeah. there was a time where I thought I was going to become like an actual like director, film director type of thing. Ooh. Anyways, there, the guy who was yeah, go, giving here. this talk mentioned, you know, this is how you can do things cost effectively. And, um, this is how you can like make up budgets. The big one was like, when it comes to actors, there's always going to be this impulse about like, well, I have this friend or like this person can kind of do it or pr- maybe give the performance that I that, that I want, but they're too young, quote, for for the role. It's like, let me caution you in doing that because nothing will break you out of something. If it's like, mm, like they're a good actor, but they don't actually fit like this role in particular. And I feel like Nick Nolte is like the best example of that. Like whether you think he's a good actor or not, in five seconds, it's like, oh, I understand who this guy is. I know what his whole deal is. Like he just brings this presence when he comes on. It's like, oh, like I can do so much shorthand for this for this character just because you have brought Nick Nolte in to be in this role. I haven't seen most of his filmography would, and I I don't think you have either. I wonder if that's because he's easy to write for or because he shows up and he's just Nick Nolte. You have no choice. Drunk as he walks on the set type of thing. Yeah. yeah. And you're just like, all right, well, listen, uh, my script was not an alcoholic old man, but we're just going to run with it because otherwise we have nothing. (laughs) Nowhere to go with this role. (laughs) But I don't know. Yeah, I guess I just appreciate Nick Nolte on just that level where it's he, he's one of those people where when he shows up, it's like you don't have to do any extensive like explanations of His backstory. Presence. It's yeah. like, yeah, OK, I get it. 
The last person we should bring up is Eddie Murphy. This was his very first film role. 22? How old was he? He was, he was pretty young. Yeah, he's a kid still. Yeah, it was like just coming off of Saturday Night Live. I don't um, age, well, we'll tell a story about that. I'm going to tell a story about that. He was in the middle of his run because he starts, as yeah, I yeah. think, in 80 or 81. Yeah, 80. Yeah, yeah 80. And he goes but till 85, I think. He go, he's on there for five years. Oh, he's 20. He's 22. Yeah, 22. 22. Okay. 20, uh, no, 21. Sorry. He's born in 61. 21. So he's 21. He's a baby. We went into much more detail when we talked about Bowfinger in our uh, bonus episode on Patreon. So go sign up over there if you want to hear more thoughts about Eddie Murphy. But it is remarkable. I really do, do think it's remarkable. Because it's a bonus episode. It's a good movie, though. How yeah. big Eddie Murphy was. I don't know how, how else to explain it. Like, if you weren't around, I think. For, for Eddie Murphy being in like the popular culture, I think some people might just look at it and be like the nutty professor guy or like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that guy was like super big at one time. Again, going back to the Bowfinger thing and he's in the news here as we record this, but Steve Martin, how people like what he was selling out stadiums in the seventies like, how, how is that possible? So anyways, it's just, it's, I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around like just how big, but I don't know. I think you can watch him his early career and be like, oh, I get it. Like he, there's a, this energy and this presence he has to, when he comes into a film. Well, if you're younger, what's the gen right now? Zed? What do they call them now? But if you're, you know, under 20, even maybe Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock are a little old for you, but. If you were anywhere in the 2000s, if you think Dave Chappelle was the greatest thing to comedy, and he had Chappelle show, which broke television mm-hmm. because it was so amazing. They're all, you know, students of Eddie Murphy, you know, just as Eddie right. Murphy was a student of Richard, Richard Pryor. Pryor and, right, yeah, yeah. and I think um, what he did was, I mean, for me, you know, the first time you get a bootleg copy of Delirious, that was the funniest thing. And most quotable stand-up uh, of that era. There was just every single joke landed. It's kind of like Adam Sandler. If you look at him now, you're like, oh, man, this guy's washed. Sure. But some of those albums he put out, imminently quotable. You go to school, whether it's elementary or high school, depending on your age, and people would just rattle off those jokes. I just tried to watch Delirious. They don't really hold up that well. Sure, but, sure. Uh, yeah, he was... He was huge and he's good looking, he's got charisma and then his work on Saturday Night Live showed that he's got such great range. We've learned that with mm-hmm. his acting uh, to some extent, but uh, he's an intelligent guy. So, he was a big deal. He's a very, very, very big deal. And t- talking about like, you know, second wins or something, it feels like there's this swing back, back. of being yeah, like, oh, he's, he's actually, he can actually, when he tries, he can actually be very great mm-hmm. at what he does. Mm-hmm. So, that's exciting to see as well. Yeah, Norbit killed him and Pluto Nash. But Oof. if you look at some of his uh, filmography, he does have great range too. I mean, he's, like Nutty Professor was big, not just because he put on a fat suit, but I mean, he's good in it. He does so many yeah. different characters. We saw that in Bowfinger. You yes. know, he does nerd, he does asshole, he does neurotic. Well, he's two distinct characters in that movie. Yeah, right. yeah. fantastic. Apparently, he was, uh, of course, now a huge uh, fan of Peter Sellers. Yeah, that makes which sense. Which is not surprising, right? Yeah. Cool. Well, let's do this here then, Dave. We should probably go and thank some sponsors. We have sponsors uh, this week? Well, we don't as we record this, <laughs> but I'm sure in the in the fullness of time, something mm-hmm. will be within that ad read section. And then when we come One back, week. we'll be talking about 48 hours. Wow, it's a 30 minute intro. We're yeah. getting longer and longer. Well, that's because you don't shut the fuck up, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. Let's see how long this episode yeah, lasts. Like, shut up. It's like, what do you think? It's good. 
Well, Dave, look, miraculously, we have been given ad copy. So that's, oh, that's yeah. exciting. That's right. We, we uh, flippantly said that there would not Correct. be any. But there is some. There is some. Magically disappeared. Thank you, machine, for doing that for us. It did not require us to go into Slack and ask for it. But we should start off by printing on a shit. <laughs> we should yeah. start off by saying that Kyle and Dave versus the machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. One of those organizations, Dave, that I get to tell you about is Park Power. Park um, Power. This episode, of course, is brought to you by Park Power. Your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. The Spider-Man of energy. Yeah, well, you know, in Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, or some people even say that it chooses you, but if you choose... Wow. Wow. <laughs> no, no one has said that ever, Kyle. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference in their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Popping the peas. Dave, what do you have? Probably an old standby. You're probably going to talk about pod power. Are you going to talk about? I keep my medical history to myself. Ask you what you Mm -hmm. have, Carl. Coming back from New York. You know what? We have a new sponsor. Oh, wow. Uh, ABC Group. Sounds like uh, something. Oh, Google, right? Mm. They're called Alphabet now, but. Right. So I screwed that up. No, it's Alberta Blue Cross Group. And, uh, you know, that's kind of cool because we haven't heard from them. Let's see here. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Alberta Blue Cross understands that running a small business is tough. And they understand business owners in Alberta are busy. Right, Kyle? They are. Always busy. Let Alberta Blue Cross give you peace of mind with a group benefit plan. They offer health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. Alberta Blue Cross group benefit plans are easy to manage anywhere, anytime, on any device, making it easy for you and your employees to access. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. Well, Dave, we have, of course, now watched the movie, 48 Hours. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if someone came up to you on the street, one of those Gen Zs came up to you <laughs> and was all like, Or if they're American, hey, Gen Z. old uh, man. <laughs> what's this? What's this? Hey, old timer. What's this 48 Hours about? Because he has it on like a VHS tape. And he's like, I'm trying to figure out what this 48 Hours is about. It doesn't fit in my computer. Right. And this weird fiction I have just created, how would you answer that question? It's about a broken detective who's put on a case and has to use a convicted felon uh, to find a mm-hmm. killer and to become fast friends. Great. I don't know if that's And it's all told within 90 minutes, which is amazing. <laughs> this is the most amazing part of this film. I mean, whatever our true feelings in the end about this movie, it's 90 minutes. Take note, everybody who makes movies these days, uh, it's quickly paced and you still get a good story out of it. It is fascinating. Uh, I Because of another podcast I listened to, they're going through all of Sam Raimi's films right now. And so nice. I'm watching oh, That's along. why I saw you rent Darkman. That's a good movie, by the way. I used to own that on VHS. Well, his thing in his early career was like he had it written in his contract. He would not make a movie longer than 90 minutes. (laughs) 
And it's like you don't need it. Like, that's what he says. Like, At I least don't, for I don't his need genre. it to be longer than ninety minutes. I can just make these movies. Um, like he Spider-Man. he actually wanted it to be eighty five. That was his magic number. He liked eighty five minute movies. That's not to say like any movie over ninety minutes is bad, but uh, in in a twenty twenty two context where every movie seems to it has point. to be two and a half hours or more, it's like know, oh my man. god! Like it's nice to be in that mode of like this is moving. Like we're getting through this uh, these action beats and understanding character and these things are landing. It doesn't feel like I'm like well that was twenty minutes a bit too much. And now that we're talking about it, I feel like the Academy should just eliminate the category for best editor. Nobody edits anything anymore. <laughs> when you're screening this film, you got to be like, oh, that 20 minutes was a fucking waste of time and added nothing. Uh, but no, they're just well, like, oh, yeah. That's what I actually this is art. wrote down. Mm-hmm. And then I'll ask you what your thoughts are. Again, regardless of what you think about this movie, what a great economical use of time in the first 15 minutes of this movie. We're introduced to the main villains. We know what they're yes. going after. We are interested in yes. Nolte. We understand who his character is. The plot yes. is set up. We're brought into uh, Eddie Murphy singing that police song. We understand what he's about all within 15 minutes. We're there. We're, we're in it. Amazing. And we have everything that we need for the rest of the movie. Gripping, right? It wasn't a 30-minute like, it... introduction to a podcast, right, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, well, we talked about... Fucking Kenneth Branagh, asshole. Death right. on the Nile. We need to know the backstory should... of the mustache, Dave. We need to know In the backstory. black story. and white, completely different cinematography. Has nothing to do with the film. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's how this movie should have probably started, Dave. We really need to know the backstory of why he's listening to that police song. Like, just a black and white and him, like, looking at Roxanne, the poster of, like, Sting up on the on the cell wall. We need that backstory. Oh, man. Actually, you know what? It, it would have probably been 20 minutes of how, how the accomplice jacked the yeah. truck or something. Yeah. Yeah, or, yeah. Where the car comes from. At any rate, I agree with you. I, I think I text you. I think this, you know, to be able to start a movie, like if you're in a theater and you don't know it's going to be 90 minutes because that's just a right. modern thing to look at the runtime. And in the first five, 10 minutes, you're like, oh shit, I'm in this because I know exactly who it is, whether I like the genre of film or not. And I'm ready to go because mm-hmm. they're just like, all right, let's get to the next beat and let's blow some shit up. Let's kill some people. Uh, it's a little problem, as we'll talk about. They kill way too many people in this movie. But uh, yeah, which is a weird thing to say because, you know, I don't mind uh, some violence, but this is this is, got a little weird by the end. Yeah, uh, I'm going to bring that up too here when we get into some other things. But yeah, what, what did you think about the movie? Why don't we just start there? What did you think about right, uh, 48 sorry. Hours? Um, well, as you and I discovered... And I suppose it makes sense. This is the essentially first protocol buddy cop movie. Yeah. So there's going so, to be rough edges. So just to you know? point this out, if this is like new information to someone that's listening, technically there were other films that were playing around with like the idea of like a buddy cop movie or, or like two unlike people trying to solve a case mm-hmm. or being a, two police officers, in this case, a convict and a police officer. Technically there were other movies that were made before this, but none of them were either widely seen popular Made in America, mm. that sort of thing. This is the first one that like blew up and basically inspired yeah. everything else that came after it. Yeah, is there a cop movie anymore that right. doesn't have an element of a buddy cop system right. in yeah, it? Yeah. You know what I was thinking as I was watching? This is like someone watched Dirty Harry and they were like, you know what? This is missing comedy and like a foil, right? Yeah. Like we no, need. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, because it has a lot of the same tone. Which is interesting that they had, they initially offered this to Clint Eastwood. Like Dirty Harry, I think for me. It, the buildup's great. Uh, I don't mind the setup of all the characters. I'm like in it. And then by the end, I'm thinking, holy fuck, this is so psychotic and sociopathic. Ending is such a weird like, oh, it's over. Mm-hmm. That 
I, I don't know. I felt a little empty at the end, a little mm. offended, frankly. Um, but as a, as a film, I think it's pretty well constructed. It's fun to watch. Um, the performances are amazing. Uh, the overt racism is a little hard to swallow today. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the very least, it's trying to have this core where Nick Nolte's like getting some redemption for being an asshole. I, I don't know whether that works that well. Yeah. Yeah. But, I um, no. It, it, it's interesting. Like we just meant, we just went off on that huge rant about how this is great that it's ninety minutes. I think if this were tried to be remade today, it wouldn't be ninety minutes anymore. It would be a full two hours because I think that's where people would want to lean into, or that would be the reason to remake this. Is like let's still do that same thing, but let's see if we can lean more into him having that realization or uh, understand like this is not how you should be a police officer with this movie is not interested in that. But I think that there's more to it. Uh, than I even realized. And I think some of its the worst imitators of this genre only took the parts, the surface level parts, and not like the stuff that I think actually makes this movie really work. There was a, a reviewer I read, uh, it's not Roger Ebert or Pauline Kael, who was mentioning how, listen, there's a big criticism in this movie about like how like none of the women characters quote unquote matter, which is in many cases fair. It's a fair criticism. They are very much sidelined. But weirdly enough, Every character is being motivated by women. Like there's this weird specter of like how the women are really motivating them to either change their lives, do something, get them to the finish line. That is no completely absent from uh -huh. all the other imitators of this genre, which is which is kind of a fascinating thing. This movie is pretty horny. And I think that a lesser movie wouldn't have even brought up the conversation. There's this that great line. I'm going to butcher it. Nick Nolte has said the N-word. He's called him all sorts of awful things. Watermelon, right? Watermelon is the so first thing he says. Melvin right? Van Peebles right, stuff. Right. Anyways, yeah, yeah. But, you know, as he starts getting that begrudging respect for this convict throughout the movie, right? They start to have that, that respect for one another. He does turn to Eddie Murphy and, and says, like, listen, I know I've been hard on you, but what does he say? He's like, I, but like, I need to keep you down because mm -hmm. my, my job is to keep you down or something like that, right? It's like, but the response is like, it doesn't have to be your job. Like, like, it doesn't have to be that way. Like, you are actually choosing to do this. And whether that was one of the script writers or Eddie Murphy wanting to put that in as a, as a line, because I know some of this was improvised as well. I think it's important that they kept that in the movie. I think that that's an interesting thing that they're <laughs> exploring within this movie, which also includes the worst excesses of police violence. Like, it is a <laughs> remarkable what a 1980s audience was like, yeah, whatever. We'll just rough all these guys up. All. Like, no one yeah. cares. I agree that it's, you know, it's, it's reasonably well written mm -hmm. considering, uh, as I learned, uh, one of the script writers, maybe the main one, uh, Stephen E. D'Souza is responsible for every blockbuster action film. Well, I, I'll, I'll ruin, I'll ruin your theory, Dave. He was fired yeah. after three weeks. He's only kept on because of WGA rules. He actually, none of his stuff actually made it into the final cut of the movie. Uh, cause I was going to say he apparently wrote Die Commando, Hard. Die Hard, yeah. Judge Dredd, and, uh, his films, uh, according to Wikipedia, have amassed $2 billion mm -hmm. in earnings. And I feel like there's a tone that's very sure. similar. But, um, you know, this is a movie that's written by four dudes. Yes. Um, probably giggling about how much they can put in this. Uh, I just find, it's kind of like Dirty Harry. The part that I hated the most was the depiction of Scorpio just as a non-human. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens in this. The bad guy, I can't remember his name. The, the bad it's guys like, are so thinly drawn. It's really unfortunate yeah. because I don't know if you feel the same way. And maybe it's because it was so fractured because of all the writers that are involved. But there seems like this very obvious comparison you could be making between the two teams of like mm -hmm. the black convict, the white cop with like 
the white convict and the Native American partner and stuff like that. And Buddy, none yeah. of that is explored at all. <laughs> they're so no. thinly drawn. They're just evil. They're just there to kill people and hurt women and steal money. It's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, they're not even cartoonish. It's just a bit of a joke. So it's hard. That's why by the end, it's a little exhausting. You know, when they start off and he violently escapes from prison, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of material you could use there. Even in a 90 minute film, it just takes like one scene, even to learn what the heist was that connects the four or five uh, bad guys. But they don't ever talk about that in any detail or whose role or how they got this bag of cash. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a letdown. And then- the tone, yeah, it's just, it's 75% I was in it and the last 25% I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I, I think it, I think it's the wrap up that, uh, that does fail. I think if the villains were a bit more better characters, like more They're fully more fleshed out, I think that it yeah. would have been just that much better because I actually love Nick Nolte's final thing, right? Where it's like, he's holding Eddie Murphy at gunpoint, the, yeah. the bad guy. He's like, don't shoot, don't shoot. And then he just goes and shoots him. I thought that was so badass. I was like, yeah, why not? What, we don't have to have yeah, like, this Josie epic long like, conversation with each other. I'm just going to go up. I'm going to shoot you off. And then it devolves into like a bit too like 1980s silliness for me, where it's like the he goes, 17 different yeah. angles of the same thing and like slow motion. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah. I'm like, okay, I don't really need all of this stuff to be happening right now. And so uh, I, I think we're aligned. I'll, I'll probably give this a higher rating than you. My guess is that's what my guess is, but is like, I liked a lot of this. I think there's some yeah. great scenes inside of this, but there are, because it is the first, it does suffer a little bit where it is that bit of raggedness to it. Yeah. Where some of the things that came after it, I think, just refined the idea to its best yeah. possible state. So the shell is there. The performances are great. There's some phenomenal sequences. I love both of the bar scenes. I think they're so yeah. great. <laughs> well, they're so good because uh, Eddie Murphy's so good yes. in them. But I, it's interesting too, like to your point about the intentionality of some of the writing. I mean, they're it's a great parallel and i also noticed you know the country music which you know i kind mm. of detest and then the bluegrass stuff they're playing at the black bar are very similar yeah. i wouldn't even be surprised if they use the same uh you know mm. whatever right key and kind of uh chord progressions but in a slightly different tone but it's such a big big uh polar thing you know you're literally mm. comparing white and black yeah that's <laughs> and it's, true it's a fascinating scene because uh it works really well i really enjoyed those uh those parts i love they have great chemistry together mm -hmm. there's a feeling that no matter how dumb a thing comes out of nick nolte's mouth a that eddie murphy can handle it and b that uh he's enjoying the repartee <laughs> instead of uh, getting overwhelmed by it because some of the dialogue even in the time i suspect would have been offensive because uh, they really go after it in a couple of pieces with the uh, yeah. overt racism. It's, yeah, they, they like... really lean into it much more than I thought they were going to. Like, um, uh, but, a little uh, jarring. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, that, like, oh, that, wow. that cowboy bar, that basically was what my grad was like. So that's... Uh... <laughs> I All I could think about, if I wrote notes anymore, it would just be like Calgary. <laughs> Calgary, yeah. Calgary. Yeah, basically substitute torches for like cowboys or something like that. And like that Honestly, you know, you know. I mean, I know uh, it's not good to generalize, but holy shit, what a prairie looking bar, mm. pal. I will say too, I like when he's trying to, when he's trying to pick up women later on, he's oh. like, I'm Reggie Hammond. And she goes like, so what? Like, I love yeah. that response. I think that's such a funny yeah. response to have back. Can I add, uh, there are two 
celebrity misses that I had. I thought the bartender might have been Meatloaf oh. and it's not. And then I thought uh, the one uh, girlfriend hooker was Xena, but it turns out hmm. to be the Star Trek woman, Tasha Yar. Oh, and, that's uh, who that was. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was like looking at her face and like, it looks a lot like Lucy Lawless, but that's weird. The timing doesn't work. Yeah, it totally doesn't and work. And it turns out, it, lo- it turns out it's uh, Lieutenant Tasha Yar, which Dave, is great. here's what I think. I think we Trekkie. need to bring back hot dogging into the popular <laughs> vernacular. <laughs> they say it like, like three or four times. Like, is this just a thing that people said back in 1982? You're hot dogging out there, Nolte. Oh, man. I also thought that the, the police chief was like bad. Like, I didn't, Way over like, the top. Really bad. I, I don't know. It's, they lampoon people with that same character now. Yeah. It's, what the hell was going on with that? You know, like Nick Nolte oh. is excessive, but he always feels like he feels real within the movie that Still we're making. Human. Yeah, Whereas yeah, like yeah. the police chief is like totally out to lunch. It's like he's the Albert Finney of the movie. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I don't understand what you're trying to do. Well, now, man, as soon as you brought that up, I'm just thinking like Lethal Weapon. Like, every mm-hmm. buddy cop movie, even Ice Cube's performance in the Jump Street right, movies, right, right. Like, right? That's what that they're is. all... They're all kind of like that, but they're played better now. Like we, they've refined it. I and need this, your badge, Marta. Like that's what. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> they've. Uh, I, I'll give this movie that much credit, which is, I mean, they're trying to push a boundary and test things out. You know, I mean, not intentionally knowing that this will become genre defining, but yeah, this sort of thing hasn't really been written mm-hmm. in this way before. So you gotta throw some extreme pieces for right. it to kind of move forward. But oh I, my I do, god, I do want to point out the some of the formal elements not here too. too. Once again, I'm just going to call out whatever film stock they're using, cameras they're using. I don't know what it is. Beautiful. I think that there's some scenes in here that look just so gorgeous. Maybe it's just easy to do that in like a Chinatown where there's all those fluorescent lights in different colors and no, stuff like so that. it's so hard but... to light that shit. I mean, imagine shooting through that mist. Oh, I mean, that's sure. not sewer gas, right? That's all manufactured. It's beautiful. But there's those other scenes like outside like the 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 bars and stuff like that, where it's almost like yeah. a greenish hue. I think it's because of the, the lights of the street lights make it greenish. All intentional. It's like, it felt Blade Runner-esque, yeah. right? With no rain. There's just something very intentional about it. I, I, I agree. I thought it was beautiful. Great. Um, and then they're just letting the camera run. Like there's those scenes in the police station specifically I was noticing where it's like, it's not that it's a one long take. Like it's not that like that is what's impressive about it. It's like- One long tone? It's a long tone because yes, it gives you that vibe. The camera is moving, so it's not just staying stationary, so it's moving with the characters. But the blocking is cool because sometimes it's like behind the desk, in front of the desk. People are moving within the scene. It's like, boy, that would have had to have been planned down to the the single frame. Because again, you are shooting on film. You're not going to be wasting time. So everyone needed to know where they're going, make it feel real, like a busy police station. And it's this kineticness that's just going around like, yeah, like this feels like a precinct that we're in, in the middle of. And still shot well, feels natural. And not excessively cut to pieces, which again is a big <laughs> criticism I have on on a lot of films, both old and new. I'd like to cut you to pieces. It made me think, what happened in the 90s that extras got so bad? And when you shoot a bar scene or a rave or a party in the 90s, it's like, it's just the worst thing you could ever see. You can actually tell there's like 30 people who have been shepherded into a room who have absolutely no idea what they're doing. In this one, in all the bars, it's like they brought a camera into an actual bar. And maybe they did. Maybe I don't did, know. Yeah. Maybe that's, yeah, I mean, that's just more of the time because you didn't have to pay as much for uh, uh, access to sites. But uh, all of it feels so lived in. I agree with you. There's just, there's so much to like in this movie. There's a reason why it was such a big hit. Yeah. It's engrossing. I just... Uh, yeah, just feel a little disappointed at the end. So, uh, to do some backstory here then, this opened up on December 8th, 1982. It's rated 3.4 out of 5 on Letterboxd, has a 6.9 on IMDb, 
71 on Metacritic and on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 93% from 46 critics, and then a 69% from 50,000 plus users. Which is interesting. I actually thought it would be like the inverse of that, that, you know, people would like it more than critics, but there we are. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent this on iTunes or YouTube. Its budget at the time was $12 million. And its box office... Yes, Giorgio. Was, yeah, I know. It still costs less than Yes, Giorgio. And it's like, I can't, I can't get over that budget for that stupid movie. Its box office would be $78.9 million, which would be like a movie making $235 million today. It was the seventh highest grossing film in North America in the year 1982. And this is like an adult action film right there's not like a family right you know attacking a smaller six-year-old to see 48 hours that's right although i did uh, just a quick thing when i went to go watch deadpool when that first Mm -hmm. came out there was parents bringing their fucking kids because it was a superhero movie and i i was like very judgmental and shrugging as i passed them like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) this is not something an eight-year-old should be watching and those are the kids that grew up to love the joker so (laughs) Its plot description is fascination trench coats. I need one. Its plot description is a hard-nosed cop reluctantly teams up with a wise-cracking criminal temporarily paroled to help him in order to track down a killer. I was pretty close. You were. <laughs> yeah, very succinct. <laughs> this is, of course, now the time we get to play guess, guess that, that tag. I'm Donnie, my favorite blazer. I have the long Bob Barker microphone. Dave, you know that when you go to a movie theater, you often see the posters up in the uh, foyer, up in the lobby, promoting the new films that are about to come out. And on those posters, occasionally there is what is called the tagline, a thing that entices you to come and watch the movie, along with the pictures and stuff that are on those posters. So there was a tagline for the movie 48 Hours. I'm going to give you three options. One of these is correct. It was the actual tagline that came on the poster. The other two, complete figments of my imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Dave. Is the tagline to this movie, all they have is 48 hours? Is it, the clock is ticking? Or is it, one cop, one con, no mercy? <laughs> I know, it's a tough one. You started mixing it up after we called you out that uh, all your pieces were exactly the same. I'm going to go with the first. What was the first one? All they have is 48 hours. I'm going to go with that one. It's probably wrong, but I don't like the other two. But as we learned, <laughs> taglines are dumb. So Sure. Well, yeah. you were completely wrong. Uh, yeah. the, the actual tagline was the last one. One cop, one con, no mercy. Yeah. The stars, of course, Nick Nolte as Jack <laughs> Cates, as Jack Cates, Eddie Murphy as Reggie Hammond, James Remar as Gans, and Sonny Landham as Billy Bear. Anything more you want to say about any of those actors? Any backstory nuggets? Yeah, you know, the one, a couple things, uh, Eddie Murphy, you know, it's interesting and kind of uh, sad. When he was a kid, his dad left his mom and his dad was a traffic cop. Hmm. He, when Eddie Murphy was eight, was killed by his girlfriend. And it just made me think, you know, apparently Eddie Murphy doesn't really have a, he he has been interviewed saying he doesn't really have a strong memory of his dad. Yeah. But when you're shooting this scene where everyone's getting gunned down in a subway station, that's got to be in your subconscious. I just, yeah, it just yeah, struck yeah. me like there's a lot of people that die uh, in this film. And I just wonder if that played a little bit. Uh, but Eddie Murphy does have a pretty dark side. If you watch his comedy, like all comedians, they're all crazy. So uh, you have to be a little bit off to make fun of anything. Right. I think. Um, you have Nick to be able Nolte, to tap into that dark side for sure. 
Yeah, of course. Otherwise, nothing's funny, mm-hmm. Kyle. <laughs> nothing's funny. Nick Nolte, do you know about his big criminal uh, no. thing? When he was 20 or something in the, in the 60s, he got caught counterfeiting draft cards Whoa. for kids that wanted to buy stuff during Vietnam. No do you know way. how much uh, time he uh, got sentenced? 45 years in prison. How did he get out? It, there's no information. It just says the judge suspended the sentence and tr- and gave him a $75,000 fine. I suspect what's it's kind of like clickbaity. I suspect that that's how much time you should get mm-hmm. for doing what he did. But probably because he was young, they were like, well, now you're a criminal. You owe us amount of money, like $75,000 in 1960-something yeah. is Lots. obscene. And um, and you're not allowed to essentially vote or be part of the American army or do all these you know, patriotic things. Knowing Nick Nolte now, I don't think he gave a fuck, but that's something, eh? He's got a proper, proper uh, criminal record. How ironic, too, that yeah. he played the cop. So, he's like, he's a felon. Yeah. He <laughs> counterfeited shit. I love that. Should have been inverted. Yeah, should have been yeah. the tough. He should have been the young whippersnapper coming out of prison. Yeah, you know, if they made it today, they might invert it. But you can't have a, a cool black cop in 1982. Right. Just wouldn't have worked for the public. Do you know the controversy on Saturday Night Live that this movie is basically responsible for? Well, I know that Eddie Murphy had to step in as a host Correct. while he was so a cast member. This is yeah. this is part of like, of course, Eddie Murphy was blowing up at the time. And then in order to promote this movie, they invite Nick Nolte to be the, the host for one week. He comes, he's doing rehearsals, and then he goes down with like some like 103 degree fever. Like he just cannot do the show on Saturday night. So they scramble and what they decide to do is like, well, we're, he's kind of here to promote the movie for eight hours. So don't, why don't we use the cast member Eddie who's Murphy. in for eight yeah. hours to be the host? So it's the only time that a current yeah. cast member of the show hosted the show it wasn't like they left and were coming back to host the show but it caused a lot of division with his castmates because like well why can't one of why us see get to do yeah, yeah why can't one of us host this show here then so it actually caused a bit of friction behind the scenes that they decided to go that route i didn't look this up but who who's part of the cast i mean it's still bill murray no i think 82 i don't think is so. he gone already by 82 well let's find out who was cast yeah, of SNL peek. in 1982. Skilda Radner's still there? No. They were all, all the original cast was gone by 1980. Yeah, the two big ones, you had Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. Like, those are the two breakouts. Because remember, this is- Oh, Piscopo. That's right. He did uh, Black and White. Yeah. Right. Uh, ivory and- uh, Ebony and Ivory. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, <laughs> I believe that was uh, one of the Beatles, Dave. Um, no. It's uh, a great sketch. You yeah. have to remember, too, like, the original cast, 1975 to 1980, NBC fires okay. Lauren Michaels. So they bring in this guy named Dick Ebersol to come and run the show for a few years before Lauren eventually gets hired back in like 84 or 85. So in the, there's that weird period of SNL where they were trying all these different things. Like if you go and watch episodes from that, those seasons, like it's very oh, weird. Mm-hmm. I think the this next year or the year after was when they did that one season where they brought like Billy Crystal and Harry Shear and um, Martin Short and those people in just for one season. <laughs> like they were only there for one season. Just to try to keep just it Just to boost the ratings and not get canceled and stuff. But like, let, I'll read you the cast list of 1982. You have Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo. Robin Duke, Mary Gross, Brad Hall, Tim Kazers, uh, Tim Kazerniski, uh, Gary Kroger, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Those are your cast members. Oh, right. Elaine was on there. Yeah, for like one or two seasons before one she was fired think, yeah. or left. Or, yeah. Yeah. Now, who knew that she would be the most successful? She was the one who became the biggest yeah. thing, other than Eddie yeah. Murphy, I would say. But Well, I mean, she's still hitting, hitting the mm-hmm. hits, right? 
Yeah, she's probably the richest out of all of them. Anyways, um, well, she was actually a she was rich before she became an actress. She's, uh, yes. She comes from I mean, money. She comes from a family. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, not like yeah, it wasn't as deep of a field, let's say, as like the original cast or even. No, I don't recognize any of the like names, the early nineties yeah. or late two thousands when they had like well, huge I, casts on there. It's kind of funny then. What are these people jealous of? They were nobodies, <laughs> it, right? They were nobodies. To, to be honest, it was probably Piscopo. <laughs> Piscopo was probably the one who was like the most angry yeah. by that. Yeah, I suspect so. Because we still, re- well, old people like us still recognize. I mean, he, he didn't have much of a career anyways. No, he, the they thought that he was though. Like everyone thought that he, yeah. him and Eddie Murphy were both going to like skyrocket to fame. And it's like Eddie Murphy was really the only one that really that took came that. out of that group. I'm a big Brad Hole fan. The cinematography is by a guy by the name of Rick Waite. If you go into IMDb, his top four movies are this movie, Cobra from 1986. Oh, Stallone. Yeah. Nice. Red Dawn from 1984. And also, no, Schwarzenegger, yeah. And Adventures in Babysitting from 87. Oh, so those are his. that's a good movie. <laughs> so, I, I don't like, like, to your point, that's the one where they took out all the swearing on yes. Disney. Yeah. Stupid. That's a good movie. It's so funny when you... When you talk about cinematographers, and I never would have linked those movies together necessarily, but when you do, it's like, oh yeah, there is like a similarity between how they look and how they're <laughs> like shot. A color palette or yeah, something, yeah. yeah. This is written by Roger Spottiswood and Walter Hill and Larry Gross and Stephen E. D'Souza. So those pauses were necessary. Dave, do you know the difference between if you see a writing credit where it's written out and like A-N-D and if there's, there's an ampersand between the name, do you know what the actual no. difference is? No. Well, this is going to be important when we write our script because the ampersand, the little symbol and means that you're a writing team. Like those people are writing together. Like Tango and Cash. Just like Tango and Cash. Yeah. So <laughs> We are very old. Nobody's going to understand <laughs> no what that what means. the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> So when they credit this, Walter Hill and Larry Gross have the ampersand. So they're a writing team. They're together. But because of, again, WGA rules and people coming in and writing different things, you do have to give credit depending on how long you've worked on it, what your contributions were. So Roger Spottiswood, he's a writer. And Walter Hill and Larry Gross, they came in and did some touch-ups. And Stephen E. D'Souza came in and did some other stuff as well. So that's how you have to credit all this stuff. I thought Roger Spottiswood was a fake name, and it turns out he's a pretty big deal. He is a he's not big only deal. Canadian. We've actually, we've actually talked about him very briefly as well. So yeah, because of Bond, but he he also made uh, another ampersand movie, Tango and Cash. Turner and Hooch. Oh, Turner and Hooch. That's right. Yeah, he did yeah. Turner and Hooch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of interesting. I know. No, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna get through this. It's probably a pseudonym, and no, no, he's kind of a big deal. So. He like works on the NFB. So I, this I is, know. of course, directed by Walter Hill. So apparently, Dave, this movie started out as an idea way back in 1971. Oh, go figure. This guy by the name of Lawrence mm-hmm. Gordon, a producer at American International Pictures, comes up with this general concept. It's just a concept of a governor's daughter is being kidnapped, having dynamite strapped to her head and with the kidnapper giving a time limit of. 48 hours before it explodes if he doesn't get wow. the money he wants. That was the initial concept. Yeah. I mean, it could be anywhere in your body. You're still going to die. But the head, yeah, that's the head pretty... specifically. We want to make psychotic. sure they die. <laughs> I should that's like point a out, weird Al Yankovic thing. I should like, point yeah. out too, just like to tie all of the movies we've been talking about together, Lawrence Gordon would become uh, very well known as an action movie producer because he would produce Point Break, Predator, and Die Hard. <laughs> Those yes. are the movies he would go on to help Wait, didn't uh, Stephen E. D'Souza wrote Die Hard too? And he wrote, yeah, D'Souza wrote Die Hard, and then this guy that, produced Die Hard. It's a good movie. Still holds up. Still holds up. 
Gordon met Walter Hill when they wanted to make this movie called The Last Gun, uh, but that falls through. They make The Warriors instead, and Gordon still wants to make this movie called 48 Hours, so he gives the assignment to editor Roger Spottiswood, who, uh, by the way, edited Straw Dogs. He takes a crack at the script. This would actually turn out to be his only ever screenplay because... Technically, he did the first draft, which is why he has to be credited. He then would have technically created the characters. So the sequel to this movie, if they ever reboot this movie, he gets paid again because he created the characters. He'll always get he'll always get that. So he goes through the script, does does basically the, the outline of what this movie is. Technically, we've already mentioned it. He would go on to be a director and be known that way. So Turner and Hooch, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, The Sixth Day, probably his three best known ones. Script is done. Pretty okay movies yeah. from my youth. They probably don't hold up well, but that's okay. Uh, script is done. It gets bounced around to a few different studios. Different directors and stars are interested. We've already talked about Clint Eastwood being thought of as being uh, the lead actor. He was also interested in directing it too for a bit, but it eventually it gets placed in front of Walter Hill. He likes the general concept, but actually wants to add one element to it. He liked the idea of actually pairing this grizzled older cop with a younger black star. Like that was his, what he wanted to add into the movie. Richard Pryor was mentioned specifically as being the inspiration in changing the executives minds about how a black person could carry a movie. So the producers are on board for them to try this out. Hill also wanted this film to feel improvisational. Like there's a quote of him saying that if we just get two actors who have personas, we don't really need to write anything other than them just being themselves and it'll make the movie work. So that was his like inspiration of. He was right. Which he was yeah. correct. Yes, he is. He was proven to be true. Two good uh, personalities. Um, We've already talked about how Eddie Murphy was like the biggest thing on television at the time. Although Gregory Hines was actually the first person they wanted it to be, but he couldn't do it. He was busy doing something else. So they hire him. Um, I think it was didn't his. Did he do a buddy cop movie after? He Gregory did, Hines. and I can't remember what it's called, but uh, <laughs> he did do a okay, buddy well, cop movie have, after yeah. this. I was like, I've seen him in a buddy cop movie. Okay, keep going, keep going, sorry. I believe it was Walter Hill's girlfriend. I was reading this just moments ago that actually was like, how about Eddie Murphy? He's good on television. That, that's why they hired him. Murphy's one demand, though, was that if he's going to come and do this movie, that he wanted to change the character's name. Is that why he keeps saying it? Yes. Throughout the film? <laughs> so it's Reggie Hammond. Like That's his that's his character's name. Because in, I the, love original, it. in the original script, it's Willie Biggs. Which he thought was oh, way too gross. stereotypical of a black man's name. Oh, it's like I can't. That's such yeah. I, I can't. I, I cannot be a man called Willie Biggs in this movie. No. So. I was wondering why he keeps, but that's just him kind of being an asshole about it too, right? Because he goes in that bar Probably. and he's like Reggie Hammond, Reggie Hammond. And he's just like, <laughs> all right, I get it. But uh, yeah, that makes sense. That's funny. Now the other two writers that are credited are essentially hired to add jokes into this movie. Like that's mm. basically what they were hired to do. To punch it up. Punch it up. Yeah, exactly. That's what they would call it nowadays. They came in to punch up the script. Although a lot of times nowadays, there's uncredited people who punch mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. scripts. You get paid a lesser fee for just coming in. If you've seen the, which Dave, you wouldn't, but if you go and watch the movie The Lost City with Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock, which I want to see it. I actually enjoyed I'd it, but it. there are very obvious moments where those are punch ups that are going the tone on. Tone like, changes. That was a, I didn't see your lips moving. So that was obviously someone adding that in post. <laughs> D'Souza works on the movie for like three weeks or something, but movie, but Murphy basically gets him fired off the movie because they just were not agreeing on what was funny is basically what was happening. And then from what I read, people claim that none of his work actually shows up in the movie. But again, 
because he worked on the movie. He has to be credited for working on the movie. That's why his name is in the credits. And we've already mentioned he goes on to write Die Hard, Die Hard 2, Street Fighter and Commando. So he goes and does a string of those types of movies in the 80s. Well, this is it's just interesting when you look at his screenwriting history. The tone is there. Mm -hmm. They must have used some of his inspiration in this film. Because there's a there's a through line there. For you know? sure. Uh, uh, because apparently it was Larry Gross who gelled more with Murphy's style and they were able to work together to bring comedy into the character moments. And Gro- Gross would go on to work on another Walter Hill movie called Streets of Fire and then go into some television like MacGyver and some other stuff. MacGruber. I, sorry. Wrong, the inter- wrong Mac. I have to. This is this is me being older and my memory now being bad for like specifics. But I listened to a podcast last year. That was either an interview with Eddie Murphy or just the hosts talking about the career of Eddie Murphy. And I just can't remember what it was. Regardless, my understanding for this movie in particular is because this is his first movie, that Murphy's performance was so bad in the first couple of weeks that he was almost fired off this movie. He fresh princed it. Yeah, like like (laughs) unusable footage. Like he just was not being able to work again he's not an actor either at this point right he's like a comedian Mm -hmm. yes he's on saturday night live but he's not like a a trained actor or anything studio's getting nervous tempers are getting like really heated on set and then this is where i can't remember either if it was hill or someone in the production it basically just gives murphy this piece of advice it's like you're trying to portray this like as a character just do the lines but as if you eddie murphy were in this situation like what would you do and that was enough just to unlock it for him to be like oh okay i can feel way more confident and then basically just nails it and this runs runs with it from there believe that story if you want that's up to you the last thing that i want to bring up is the box office which this has this interesting phenomenon that does not happen a lot although happened more regularly i would say in the 80s than it does now which is that When this movie opens up, it opens up in third place. So it's behind both The Toy, the Richard Pryor movie, The Toy, and Airplane 2, right? So normally what would happen is like, okay, it's a little bit disappointing. It's going to drop by like 20 or 30% week over week and slowly fade away. That's not what happens. It actually makes more money its second week, retains its box office, goes on to be the seventh highest grossing movie of the year. Like it just got so great word of mouth that people just like flocked to this and made it a huge hit. Uh, like I said, which doesn't really happen nowadays. Like if you don't hit on your first weekend, like you very rarely are going to recoup anything. The last movie that I can recall that that did that is nothing like this movie is The Greatest Showman <laughs> of all movies. Because The Greatest Showman opened up in like fourth place, gets $20 million. And then it's I think it's like... a good fourth place, by the way. Sure. Like like because it opened up like the same week as the remake of Jumanji and like the force awakens had opened up the week before. So it just got trounced at the, at the box office. Also, uh, is it, it's not that good. It's not, to but be I, honest. that's why it was so, <laughs> that, that was why it was so baffling to so many people. Cause critics didn't like it. And even, but audiences yeah. kind of did where it's like, it makes it $20 million on its first weekend. So you would think, okay, it's going to drop by like 40% and it'll just go. And it doesn't. It drops by like $5 million the next week. And this keeps making fifteen to 10 to $13 million every week for four months. And it's just like, why? And it goes on to be like the biggest thing in like the last decade or so. It's like, I don't, no one really under, still understands why that movie made so much money. Probably because people are just so tired of being cynical. <laughs> and they're like, it has Maybe. a circus in it? I need, I need a circus in my life. And then you watch, you're like, oh, this movie's kind of depressing. I need Hugh Jackman to yell, sing at me. Over and over and over. 
Yeah, well, that's the other thing. I mean, Lemus was uh, reasonably well received. You know, mm-hmm. he's talented. You're like, he sings again with an elephant with and Zac Efron. Knows- yeah, <laughs> right. And with Zac Efron, he was. Well, yeah, we're not reviewing that movie, but. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. if only they'd make a movie with singing elephants. That's box office dynamite. I didn't realize Zendaya was acting that early too. I mean, that movie's not that old, but she's been around for a longer while. than I thought. Yeah. Good for her. So the other thing I wanted to bring up, there's just a few other notes that I wrote down here. I do always like to think about, again, think about this at the time in 1982 versus how we're looking at it now. I'm conflicted about this. As, as you know, like you always get a little bit angry for me trying to uh, justify my feelings. Um, <laughs> if you have a clear conscience, sure. you don't need to justify anything, Kyle. Here's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> Is this the feeling that we currently, like as a culture, broadly speaking, a culture has about cops now in 2022 mm. versus what they were okay. probably in 1982 mm. not even talking about the brutality and stuff like that yeah. but it's like yeah. <laughs> i just don't think if you were to make this movie if i remake this movie i truly do not think you could make nick nolte be as big of a fucking awful jerk as he is in this movie no you just couldn't the loose gun's gone like you can't you can't do the loose gun he could be a anymore. jerk but he couldn't be like roughing people up in the streets like you just you couldn't yeah, that. I mean, half of the film, as a modern viewer, you're like, none of this is ev- uh, admissible know, anymore. Right? It's like, right? This would be thrown out of court in a second. There's no, no way. He kicks down a door, you're like, there's no point now. The movie's over. Until you realize, like, obviously he's going to kill him at the end. This has mm. nothing to do with arresting anybody. But yeah, I, I felt that too. I was getting this feeling about halfway through the film where it's like, this is not a police pr- procedural, right? <laughs> no. This is it's a borderline fantasy of like what a horror cop film. is going <laughs> to yeah. do, right? Yeah. It's just the, it, they, they were like trying to see how many cops and civilians they could shoot for no reason giggling at the body count total at the end mm-hmm. um yeah I, I agree with you i think we've gotten very technical in our so the police brutality and racism is clearly a common theme in american culture sure. i mean all cultures so it is uh, and then you and i know this uh, you know both ourselves but also in film you know new york in the 80s is not new york today right. you know new york today is still scary and weird as fuck but it's uh, it's pretty and it's uh, vibrant and when people yell at you it's it's just part of that culture the new york in the 70s 80s was like you, you will die if you walk out in the street someone could just walk up to you and, and stab you in the face <laughs> put strap dynamite to your head <laughs> right, right but uh, all those themes are still there you know uh, cops that are and not so much bent in this film, but we we have a natural distrust for the law in this country, mm-hmm. in this culture. But man, it's uh, the procedural part. We're so technical now. I mean, why are we thinking about legal proceedings <laughs> when you watch an action film? <laughs> the, the idea of like sophistication, right? Like there's things that uh, an audience in 1982 would just would not have probably been privy to. But with 40 additional years of police procedurals on television, of like true crime podcasts, of whatever you want to also, put into your life. It's cops like, getting fucked. Yeah. Screwing up investigations. Oh yeah. Like with, yeah. On so both sides, social media, right? TikTok yeah. and knowing what it is, it's like, yeah, we just know now. And at least it's like, oh, you can do that. That's, an, you, they throw that, that's inadmissible. <laughs> like you, yeah. you absolutely could not be doing what you're doing right now. And so I just don't think that would have been even a glimmer of perception in 1982 when you went and saw this well, movie. Like the two women, again, I don't know if they're girlfriends or hookers or whatever they are, but I mean, they do bring it up. It, it is it is broadly known that you can't kick a door down mm-hmm. in, you know, without a warrant or whatever. You see that in many police films. I think, I just think they were I think less, it's more for uh, me, like when he's like bouncing the guy's head off of like the police desk. I'm like, no, yeah. like you're just not doing that in front of everybody. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work that way anymore. 
uh, yeah, the loose can, even driving a beat up Cadillac right. with a gun strapped to your, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a lost art. <laughs> just can't cop anymore. Like the good old days. That's right. Oh. I do want to just put a fine point on one thing that you just brought up. I really do wish the, the women did have a little bit more to do in this movie, but I oh, mean, that is yeah, a 1980s thing, I think more broadly. Well, I was surprised the girlfriend got credit. Her character she's is like useless. third build. That, that, that's what yeah. that is so fascinating to me. I but. mean, she's not a bad actor. It's not her fault. No. It's just she shows up to be naked in lingerie at a bar to cry on a phone mm -hmm. and then that's it. I mean, you could tell four guys wrote this in right. the 80s. There's just, there's nothing in it other than the women are pretty. It's kind of sad. I, again, I do want to just bring up how naturally funny I think Eddie Murphy is without like hamming it up. Like what would happen in the early 2000s, I think, with him where it's like, yeah, he's just he's just funny to listen to and watch. I think that that's great. Um, I think that's, that's why he got so famous. When you yeah. watch Delirious and Raw, I mean, Raw is less so he's he's too famous by that point mm. and, and it's kind of so extreme. But you can tell there's a guy, those natural comedy guys that like Jim Carrey's a pantomime of a human being, but you can tell that even if you sat in a room with him and he was just going to talk politics, you would start laughing because right. he has charisma. There's just something about the way his mind works, too sharp. But uh, I don't know, the, Eddie Murphy has that. He he just appears so intelligent, even when he's acting like an idiot. Mm -hmm. There's something underneath there, which I love. He's uh, He's good at that. He's good at that. Dave, the other thing, the other thing that makes it very clear that this was written by four men, do you think that we, like just right, you and I right now, should just get into a fist fight and then like like each other afterwards. Like we now respect each other because we beat each other up. Oh man, it's so <laughs> it's uh, such a like I, a male fantasy of what like real friendships are like. It's so weird to no. me. But Emerson said that one of his friends at school asked him if I was gay. <laughs> <laughs> like you. Yeah. Oh my God. Like okay. Apparently went to him and he said, is your dad gay? Like, I don't even know if, you know, eight-year-olds understand the, what that the means, context. Yeah. It makes me wonder if his parents are saying that. But I, I just think it's funny, you know, <laughs> like talking about uh, gender roles and this idea of A, what makes you a man or B, how you're supposed to relate to each other. I grew up- I would love it if your son had just said like, my dad's never been happy in his life. So- <laughs> Actually, that's not the dad he knows. But uh, if he knew me, you know, 10 years prior, before he was born, maybe. No, I, I grew up, right? In like 90s, 80s, bro culture is still pretty mm -hmm. strong. And uh, of course, you know, of course people think like that. I, I've been drunk at a bar and we yell at each other because you think it's cool, mm -hmm. right? But we're getting past that in some respect. Although the extreme is the opposite where we're getting incel groups and people planning insurrections sure. uh, to prove how masculine they are, hyper-masculinity, at least in the entertainment I wear you know, all my world. furs on top of my head. Like yeah. <laughs> With no clothes, mm -hmm. dynamite strapped underneath <laughs> the uh, thing. Uh, yeah, people are trying to wake up from that, but I don't know. I, we're in this moment, who knows, 10 years from now, maybe that'll be a thing again where mm. uh, you got to wear blue if you're a boy. I, I can't believe people still do that, right? Like when oh, they yeah. do those stupid... Uh, pregnancy announcement why did they do that in the first place well pregnancy announcements i don't know like stupid i don't know i don't want to get on too much of a rant because i am convinced that that was not a thing when i was growing up i never, never. had ever no. heard of like a, a gender reveal party in my entire life no. this feels like a very new thing and i think it's the stupidest yes. thing i've ever seen in my life because who so cares dumb. who gives a shit yeah Re and anyways. why is it blue and pink right oh why are we forming these cultures immediately it's mm -hmm. it's so weird but it's it is if so you, to, if you I, shop for kids clothes kyle the kids girls section is like 40 rows and the boys section is one. That's fucked up. 
Well, it's, that well, I mean, a really it, weird that, thing. And that, I'm, it's, I think, slowly maybe getting better because I remember not buying pink for the longest time, even though I wanted to, because, like, well, I don't want to make it seem like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm too That's gay. That's a girl's color. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. you know. Emerson's favorite. Today, he's all pink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't, you know, he's got a pink hoodie, yeah. pink shirt, pink, uh, regular pants, pink socks, pink shoes. And I'm like, fuck it. If that makes me gay, I'm happy. <laughs> right, you know, fuck cares? all these other kids. Who gives a shit? He's happy. He skips to school. Yeah. We woke. We, yeah, so so much though. <laughs> um, woke police over here. <laughs> the other thing that I know a lot of people will say like is maybe a criticism they level at it. It is unintentionally perhaps one of my favorite things, my favorite tropes in action cinema is how easy glass windows break. It, it's like <laughs> the candy glass, a, a, a small bit of wind and that like, shatters into a million pieces and nobody's it, cut. I love yeah, no one yeah. is bleeding. It's like when they're trying to escape, it's like tap smash. You're like, it's the whole just thing like, that yeah. just completely <laughs> obliterates itself. I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> I like the idea that you can dive through glass. I'm sorry. That you can dive through glass with your hands first <laughs> and they wouldn't break at the wrist. <laughs> Or just be like so, so yeah, deeply yeah. cut on your wrist that you're like bleeding out when you hit the ground. You're fighting in an alleyway, someone throws you into a wood crate and just like, oh yeah, it shattered. Let's keep fighting instead of like, I just displaced three of my ribs. I've got splinters all pointing out of my neck, mm -hmm. but uh, no, let's keep punching each other. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, how we get that begrudging respect because, you know, real <laughs> men punch each other in the face, Dave. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has said we have to wrap this stuff up. Um, so let's get into some critics choice here. This is what... Some of the critics were thinking at the time this movie came out, Roger Ebert gave this movie three and a half stars out of four. This is in part what he writes, The movie's story is nothing to write home about. It's pretty routine. What makes this movie special is how it's made. Nolte and Murphy are good, and their dialogue is good, too. Quirky and funny. Character actor James Remar makes a really slimy killer, genuinely evil. Annette O'Toole gets third billing as Nolte's lover, but it's another one of those thankless women's roles. Not only could O'Toole have phoned it in, but she does, spending most of her scenes on the telephone, calling Nolte a no-good bum. The direction is by Walter Hill, who has never been any good at scenes involving women and doesn't improve this time. What he is good at is action, male camaraderie, and atmosphere. His movies almost always feature at least one beautifully choreographed, unbelievably violent fight scene, and the fight scenes this time are exhausting. In 48 Hours, Nolte and Murphy are human, vulnerable, and touching, also mean, violent, and chauvinistic. It's that kind of of movie that's what he had to say and i loved it three and a half stars i mean yeah. I, I, I mean it always depends on what your litmus <laughs> test oh, is for just, that but sometimes it's like yeah like i can understand that like, this is a dumb action movie but i enjoyed it for what it was oh, i just i just like i just like comparing the tone of the script with the final score right, right? it's like that sounded very negative mm. the way he was writing that but uh you know three and a half stars i've never I seen mean, the worst bro, film of my right? life Three out of four. <laughs> well, he's a bro, right? But it's uh, this is what we do. This is what we do. Three and a half stars. So I will now admit that I kind of skimmed through Pauline Kael's review. It's probably too long. <laughs> it was very long. Um, but it it's one of those things where it's like I don't, I don't really know what you think. I shouldn't say that. Um, I feel like uh, the '80s. She's been really all over the place. Well, she doesn't right? give a she doesn't give a rating, so it doesn't like maybe clarify that into oh, place. But like from my opinion, like if it was like a five scale it's like a two and a half out of five like there's some stuff she really likes some stuff she doesn't like so she kind of keeps going back and forth what was she saying this is how she ends it off though the picture represents what in la is called professionalism its only goal is box office and it appears to have been pared down to just what it can sell 
What's left in, of course, is Nolte defending Murphy against McRae's complaints and yelling, He's got more brains than you'll ever know. He's got more guts than any partner I've ever had. And in the film's biggest scene, in a redneck country and western joint, just your everyday San Francisco hangout, Eddie Murphy, using the badge Nolte has handed him, intimidates a mob of angry crackers. The audience has been so hyped up by then that it roars with laughter, as if white men really were terrified of omnipotent black cops. Murphy is a whiz of a performer. He has concentration and intensity, and he's so young that there's an engaging spirit in what he's doing. But this picture is plastic paranoia all the way through, and it has handed him a dubious victory. Pryor made white people understand his resentments, and it felt good to have that stuff out in the open. 48 Hours brings out invented distorted hostilities and is being cheered for it as if it were doing us a service. I do want to point that out, though. I do think that's Three another... Three and a half stars. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> uh, uh, I read you five thumbs up. We don't know what that's out of. No scale. I, 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 yeah, I don't want to go through this entire episode without pointing that out. I know that's what the point of the movie in many ways is. But having the white people so afraid to see a black man in power, I think, is an interesting choice that this movie goes through. Like, as soon as he, like, flips that script and like, oh, shit, like, you can rough us up. Like, we've been able to rough you up. Like, I think there, there is a passing of the torch almost at that point. Well, we, you know, we've missed a decade yeah. in reviews, but we saw that, uh, we saw that with Shaft and with, That's what uh, I'm saying. I think it's an evolution of even like, um, uh, yeah. in the heat of the night in 67 or whatever that yeah, was. Yeah. Like it's been building to this People scene. are aware of it. Right. I mean, civil rights, you yeah. know, they're aware of it and it's being put on film, but we missed that decade. So I don't know how, um, mainstream it was yet. It was mm-hmm. probably a lot of independent cinema for sure, but I don't know. I, this, uh, to both those reviews points, this movie is so popcorny. I don't even know if I got a broader political perspective of it. It's, no, I think it's just it's peppered just, in there. I think that's what yeah. I enjoy about this movie is that it even considers put, peppering those in. At the end of the day, no, it is pure popcorn. You're supposed to be having fun laughing. That is what the point of the movie is. But Enjoying I think a lesser gore. movie would not yeah. even try to include those elements where this one yeah. does at least include them into the narrative. And maybe that's Eddie Murphy too. Yeah. Because uh, he's got a strong person. I mean, you know, he's Reggie Hammond. <laughs> what was that name again? I think I like Willie Biggs better. Dave, we do have to ask this question that we ask each and every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? It's hard. I, I'm like medium on both. It mm-hmm. holds up, like we talked about, in its 90-minute uh, runtime, its buildup. But the ending is so dumb that I don't know if it's that fulfilling anymore. And mm-hmm. it's been done to death because it is a genre-defining film. So I'm like a... I'm a lukewarm, tepid on that. If someone said to watch it again, I, I'd still sit down and watch this. So I don't know what that means, Kyle. Is yeah. It, is it holding up? I think I think it does hold up. Weird. Although I, I think you do have to be very upfront and be like, this is very much a movie of its time. Like, I really yeah, do yeah. think you can feel like this is... Very 1980s. It's very 1980s. It's very 1980s. So I still enjoy it. But like, is it a transcendent film? No, I don't think it is. But it still holds up. I'd watch it again. Do you think anyone under 30 would... I suspect yeah, not. Probably not. Anyways. Um, I think there's elements here, but yeah, I think, I don't think a modern audience would. Like if, yeah. If you don't know who Nick Nolte is, you don't know who Eddie Murphy is, and you've seen every buddy cop movie, sure. which is like three a year for the last, you know, 15 years, this movie's going to drag. Mm-hmm. Uh, not drag because it's, it's quickly paced, but it's, it's not going to be that fun. It is true. Like, I mean, even those movies are getting older now too, but if you watch a 22 Jump Street, for instance, it's like. Oh, like th- this hilarious. feels like the movie that that movie's making fun of, which it kind of is. Like, it, like there's yeah, yeah. Th- there's been that so much of evolution in the meantime. For there was a sequel 
called Another 48 Hours that came out in 1990, which I've been told is very bad. I've never seen it, so I don't know. What I read up on that, though, is that the studio took it over and recut it, so... It just doesn't make sense because they literally cut out an entire plot line from the movie. We're waiting for the director's cut. Yeah. Anyways. Two and a half hours. Zack Snyder will be in charge of it. Mostly it's for... Yeah. But the uh, Martian Manhunter scene that happens at the end of it, (laughs) totally worth it. Um, There was a a remake in Hindi in 1984. So there's a Hindi remake of this movie. And then there was a Hollywood remake that was supposed to kind of start happening in 2017, directed by the Safdie brothers. And starring Gerard Carmichael, but apparently that's been changed to be like an original concept. So they're doing something a little bit different. I don't know who any of those people are, so I, I couldn't tell. Uh, Gerard Carmichael that. actually just came up with a comedy special here recently. So you know the Safety Brothers, they did Uncut Gems. Oh, did you hear that, Sai? I like Uncut Gems. It made me so tense watching that movie. You love anxiety? I did. I thought you hated anxiety. I, d- I do, but when I watch it in a movie, it oh, helps me live through that experience in a safe space, Dave. Dude. But it's like, I've never... Like, he's good in it, yeah. right? But by the end, I was like, I just want to throw up now, because uh, I yeah, don't know like, what Yeah, it's every happened. choice you've made has made me want to die. Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> what are you doing? It's not a bad movie. I just, I hated watching it. <laughs> Well, we do need to read... It's like Ebert. I just, I write like, oh, why did this... This is so fucking... I, I felt terrible. Three and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hated every moment watching this film, but it's you know, solid. Four out of five. Um, okay, Dave, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we're talking about that week. So on Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini review of that film. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie, Dave. Is it three and a half for you or what are you going to do? Three and a half stars. No, I I think we'll go with a three. Hmm. I am... I thought I was going to like this more because I remember it differently. And I loved the first, like we talked about, but the other stuff's too overwhelming. It's hard to stomach the racism. The ending is so dumb. And the graphic violence isn't worth it. There's a lot of graphic violence at Die Hard. I think that's like almost a perfect movie. This one just yeah. didn't feel like it earned it. So three, Eddie Murphy's great in it. Nick Nolte's really good in it. I'm going to go with the three. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I liked it more than you. I thought it was uh, pretty strong for the most part. Uh, we've talked about the things that I don't like, the ending, some of the women characters. I, I, I don't know. Maybe the grittiness was enough to win me over for the majority of this. I'm going to give it a four. I'm going to give it a four out of five. Wow. Which means... I mean, you do like uncut gems. I do like so. uncut gems. <laughs> you know what made the uncut clearly... gems more, more palatable? Nick Nolte. We need more Nick Nolte <laughs> in uncut gems. <laughs> I'm surprised he's not in it. You're funny because you uh, reek of optimism mm-hmm. and uh, all this stuff, but uh, you actually like disgusting films, Kyle. So uh, you say disgusting. I... I like uh, traumatic films. Is how I put it. Like, <laughs> take me on a journey. So that's going to average a 3.5 in our ratings. That is tying with uh, three other movies. But let's go okay. up from bottom to top. Have a conversation. We'll see where we want to stop it. So 
at the bottom of that list is Fitzcarraldo. Do you think that this is better or is worse better. than Fitz? Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with that. I think, again... doesn't aim for as much, but yeah, it's better. The A-B yeah. test of, like, which one do you want to watch more? Absolutely. I would, I would pick 48 hours. hours. Which then, okay, above that is Gandhi. So... Uh, I would put above Gandhi. You would put 48 hours over best picture Oscar winner, Gandhi. We've talked about Gandhi. Well, we didn't talk about Gandhi, actually, Dave, because you were not on that episode. Well, we did on the video. Which is why this is rated so high, because (laughs) your rating doesn't count. Like Fitzcarraldi, it aims for too much, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's boring. Kyle, so boring by the end. That last hour, such a Of Gandhi you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I would put this above Gandhi, too. So then, do you think we put this above or below the verdict? I would put it below the verdict. I like the verdict better than this movie. Mm-hmm. Again, the ending was such a cop-out, but it's only like five minutes instead of a weird sure. violent shootout and then a scene where Eddie Murphy gets sex and they decide to split the money or whatever. I just... Verdict was a much better film in my opinion, so yeah. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I I, I gave um, a higher rating here to, to 48 Hours, 48. but again, if I'm looking at like what does what it's trying to do better, I would probably err on the side of the verdict. And Paul Newman is Paul Newman. Come on. Paul Newman's Paul great Newman. in that movie. I mean, Nick Nolte's an alcoholic too, but uh, Paul Newman plays it better. Mm-hmm. So, you know. <laughs> that is true. Well, then that means that 48 Hours is going to enter our list at the number six position. Pretty high. It's good. Yeah. All right. Well, we should probably find out what we're watching here next week. I'm just going to push this button. All right. Um, I, I have a memory of this showing up on Criterion a few months ago, but I have no idea what it's about. We're going to be watching Smithereens next week. Smithereens. It feels like this the name of a deli in Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right? Smithereens on rye, please. <laughs> yeah. Just uh there a deli that has the name similar to Kill that? the chicken and hold right. the eggs or whatever they whatever <laughs> patter they do to the, the staff in the back. <laughs> well so what do you do to beef that makes it corned? <laughs> <laughs> you just rub a cob on top of it. You just <laughs> mash that cob in as much as you can. Just get all the E. coli out with a raw cob. Like, what is corn to beef? I should have, I don't know. It's good, but what is it? I don't know. I'm more of a pastrami man myself, so. <laughs> all right, well. That's uh, uncut. No, it's, you know, just. Well, so what? what's going on? Uh, dentist, arcade, money, door. It's your story, man. That's. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a, I'm just an active participant in it. You're, you're setting it up. I don't know. Tangled webs. Tangled webs. Let's, let's, let's leave this on a cliffhanger. I'm just going to jiggle this door. This movie is pretty horny.